This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by Vimeo. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter. It's April 13th, 2017, and on this week's show, a big preview of what's to come at this year's NAB, what might be shutting down Hollywood, what the new Academy rules mean for you, and we'll hear from a bunch of indie filmmakers whose films are coming out theatrically this week. Also, as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. As always, we're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So, it's a big week in Western religions. I want to wish a happy Passover to our Passover celebrating friends, a happy Easter to all you Easter bunnies out there, and a happy springtime to everyone. Let's hope it sticks. Yeah, let's hope no snow sticks. Oof. Um, No snow is going to stick for John Fusco because he is out in La La Land under some shady palm trees. We're missing him this week on the show, but he will still be uh, editing it. So hi, John. Thank you. Meanwhile, we can jump right into our headlines. And I will start. Our news is very Hollywood focused this week, even though we're an indie show. Because, hey, stuff that happens in Hollywood affects us, too and vice versa. So if there hadn't been such a major headline-making kerfuffle at this year's Oscars, we may have heard a little more about another small controversy that raised some eyebrows, and that was the nomination and ultimate win in the documentary category of Ezra Edelman's O.J. Made in America. It's not that people thought it was a bad film. Actually, it's almost universally agreed that it's a good one. But it's the format that there were gripes with. See, it's not a traditional doc. In case you didn't know, it's a seven and a half hour miniseries produced by ESPN. So many people found this unsettling to the point that now the Academy has changed its eligibility rules such that, quote, multi-part or limited series are not eligible for awards consideration. Some of the documentary community is a bit up in arms about this. Um, Film writer Eric Hines summed it up on Twitter. He said, another year, another eligibility crackdown from the documentary branch. Somehow, it's only documentaries that need to be defined and restricted, as if it were too easy to make and disseminate these things in the first place. So as a doc person, I kind of see it both ways. On one hand, there's only one documentary category, so I think that some parameters are helpful so that it doesn't get watered down. But on the other hand, rules like this one pit doc filmmakers' interest in getting Oscar recognition directly against our need to make a living. We'll see how it kind of all pans out for next year. The Academy announced several other rule changes that might affect you as well, the biggest being that animated feature films will now be nominated by members from other branches like actors and writers, whereas the nominations used to come from a craft-based peer group of just other animators. This could be seen as a ding against indies because it could give an advantage to films from large studios that are more familiar to people outside the field like Pixar and DreamWorks. We actually just published a supercut tribute to one of the smaller studios, G-Kids, which has had recent Oscar success with an impressive nine Academy Award nominations in just nine years for films like My Life as a Zucchini and The Red Turtle. So this would be a good time to check them out, give them a little extra support. Actually, it's also a good time to mention that the G-Kids produced adult animation film My Entire High School Sinking Into the Sea is hitting theaters this Friday, and we have an interview with that film's director, Dash Shaw, at nofilmschool.com. And he drew the entire thing out of his apartment on his laptop, so pretty impressive story. Serious indie. Mm Mm-hmm. And 
keeping out there on the left coast? <laughs> There's some turmoil going on on the left coast. But first, if I came here to tell you that we're in the golden age of TV, or even worse, to use the term peak TV, to woman-splain your binging appetite, you're probably going to assume that I have a Hotmail email address. It's 2017. Everyone knows cinematic television is king. Or queen. Or queen. Everyone knows that on television productions, writers are the new directors. But what you may not know is that they're not getting fairly paid for it. That's why the Writers Guild of America has a serious bone to pick with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents the major studios, networks, and independent producers. These two parties were in heated negotiations for two weeks as the WGA tried to secure better contracts for its writers. The negotiations ended abruptly on March 23rd when the WGA proposed a strike vote. But this Monday, the parties resumed negotiations in a last-ditch effort to avoid a strike. But the tensions are extremely high, and it is not looking good. If the strike does happen, it will start on May 2nd, which is conveniently just in time for networks to start panicking over fall programming decisions. And as of now, it seems the WGA and AMPTA are at an entire impasse. So you may be wondering why writers make less money as more of us cut the cable cords. What it all really boils down to is shorter seasons, inflated budgets, and the absence of reruns. You see, with longer and more movie-like episodes of television, seasons now consist of 10 or fewer episodes on cable and streaming, which is less than half the length of traditional seasons on network shows. Because writers sign something called exclusivity clauses, they can't work on multiple shows in one season, and they're not getting paid more for the longer episodes. Also, now that reruns are off the table, writers have lost another big source of income. It seems that the studios have thrown the writers under the bus in order to pay for longer, more cinematic productions. And to make matters even more complicated, there's a well-documented lack of transparency in streaming service numbers, so it's nearly impossible for writers to know if they're getting paid fairly for their residuals. Wow, that's rough. In a recent letter to its members, the WGA West claimed that, quote, after earning a half a season salary at minimum, writers can find themselves both losing health coverage and unable to pay the bills. The Guild went on to say that the average pay of TV writer producers fell by 23% in the last two years. Meanwhile, entertainment companies experienced a record $51 billion in profits last year. So clearly the scales are not tipped in the writer's favor. So what does the WGA want? Well, for starters, it wants a 1.5% increase in employer contributions to the Guild's health plan. But the studios have responded to this request with proposed rollbacks, including a $10 million cut in the first year. Come on. Yeah. WGA is also asking for a 3% increase in minimums, script fees for the lowest paid writers, and bigger residuals from streaming media. These are not unreasonable demands by any means. And it, that's clearly evidenced by similar increases obtained by the Directors Guild of America in the same round of negotiations in January. This is not the first time Hollywood might shut down for a writer's strike. About a decade ago, writers participated in a three-month strike in a dispute over pay for movies and TV shows distributed online. So if the writers go on strike, what does that really mean? It means that television fall programming is effed <laughs> completely. It's uh, farted. <laughs> yes. Um, there's. It also means that um, the Hollywood infrastructure just gets completely whacked out. Like if you remember from the um, the decade ago writer strike, Hollywood shut down for almost the entirety of the three month strike because, you know, 
if one major cog in the wheel isn't working, then that sets off a whole cascade of house of cards into motion. Mm. Yeah. And house of cards might not get written if there's a strike. (laughs) That's true. It's kind of uh, ironic that this next piece of news came out in the same week that the Writers Guild strike is being contemplated or considered because it also has to do with Hollywood and it also has to do with streaming and it could be a real boon to the industry rather than a potential detractor. Um, So Netflix continues to pull surprises out of its very deep pockets. Netflix chief content officer, or as I like to call him, Coco, (laughs) (laughs) Ted Sarandos told The Wrap on Tuesday that the company is going to stop chasing tax incentives in other states and countries and move as much production as possible to, of all places, Hollywood. Except in cases where location is central to the show, Sarandos said, quote, I personally believe instead of investing in tax incentives that we should invest in infrastructure, noting that some of the Hollywood sound stages haven't really been updated since the 30s. Imagine how much tech, you know, industry tech has changed since then. Um, it's yet another move in the streaming services attempt to dominate traditional media. But according to Sarandos, this particular effort is human centric. He's seen evidence that having a happy team that doesn't have to up and move every time they start a new production is good for the people involved and for the production itself. He argued that shows actually get better when people are happier and not uprooted. Uh, So what does this mean for all of us? Maybe the palm trees and traffic jams are calling. Never. I'm an (laughs) East Coast woman. Also, do you think that Netflix is actually trying to attract more uh, high quality stars to their shows and movies? by doing this? Yeah, not just the on-screen talent, but the off-screen talent. You know, to Sarandos's point, these writers, the crew, every time they're on a new show, you know, maybe they've established a family in LA and then every time they're on a new show, they have to leave that family for three or four months to go to Louisiana because there are some tax incentives. So I get the logic behind it, but there is this underlying assumption that everyone lives in LA, which they don't necessarily do. And so I don't know if this will mean ultimately more makers will move to LA or I think a way it could affect us all positively is if other uh, states and cities and countries try to up their uh, incentive game to compete with this move and try to make it even more and more attractive to shoot in other places, which, you know, again, ultimately would benefit anyone making content. And at the end of the day, Netflix doesn't need the tax incentives as much as independent productions do. So leave them for the people that need them. Fair enough. And as always, for gear news, we turn to our tech writer, Charles Hain. Hi, Charles. Hey, Liz. Hey, everybody. So it's April, which means that all of our big tech news at the moment will be dominated by one thing, and that is NAB. The National Association of Broadcasters meeting is in Las Vegas the last week of April, and it's the best time to meet face-to-face with all your favorite vendors, has traditionally been a platform for releasing a lot of the latest and greatest gear, and is an event we recommend all filmmakers make it to at least once in their career. So, early product releases are already hitting the streets, and of course, there are rumors aplenty about what we're going to see in Sin City at the end of the month. Uh, What we're going to talk about this week is drones. Drones have been a lot of the news for the last year all over the film industry. And uh, with NAB coming up, the first big news out of the gate is 360 Designs are going to be doing the first public demo of their live streaming VR drone. 
So live streaming is already one of the most fascinating applications for VR tech. And the ability to live stream from a flying drone is an amazing technical feat. That's a lot of bandwidth that has to push through the stream. And it's going to have huge applications in live event coverage. Imagine being able to fly above, in and around the Super Bowl, and then down onto the field or the red carpet from the Oscars. And you'll get a sense of the excitement around this kind of technology. It's really going to change things. Oh, it's going to be insane. Yeah. I, I'm a I'm a VR holdout. I haven't seen a lot that's blown me away, but I'm like, oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I'm excited to play with that. DJI, the drone leader, is also rumored to be coming out not just with a new version of the Phantom, the Phantom 5, but also a little buddy to the Mavic Pro, which is probably going to be called the Spark. Little buddy. Little buddy. The Mavic was already the little buddy. Aww. So it's going to be like a, a pupper. Um <laughs> The Spark will probably be for selfies. So while there are a lot of selfie drones already, uh, drones are pretty complicated. And when a lot of other people try and make them, they don't always pull it off. As GoPro proved last year, you need a lot of expertise to make a great drone. And right now, DJI has all of that expertise. So if they make a selfie drone, expect to see a lot of them in the world very quickly. If anyone can prove whether there's a market for selfie drones, I think it's DJI. I feel like that is definitely made for like teenagers and not men in their 40s who do all that they can to avoid having selfies taken from above or photos taken from above. <laughs> the bald spot camera? They're like, it'll follow you around and constantly Baldy photograph cow. your bald spot. Uh, you know where I think it's really going to take off? Families on vacation. Like I, when I went to the Grand Canyon a couple years ago, I like like four different people asked me to take their photo, and like the ability to be anywhere and like have everybody all together and get the photo, I think is where the spark will shine. Mm. Sparks don't shine. That wasn't a good pun. I'll try again later. Uh, speaking of drones, there are rumors Canon is going to be releasing a drone, though they probably won't make it themselves. They'll instead partner with and invest in another Japanese drone manufacturer. So, this drone probably won't be targeted at the consumer and will be more of a professionally targeted industrial tool for work at night and in inclement weather. But the drone's likely going to use the ME20 camera from Canon, which we've run articles about, and if you don't remember, has a reported ISO of 4 million, allowing it to essentially see in the dark. Now, even if this is intended for industrial use, if filmmakers can't figure out a way to get their hands on one and do amazing work with a 4 million ISO flying camera, I will be really surprised. So we'll see something from this pretty soon, I bet. Um, there's way too much about NAB rumors and releases to cover it all this week. So there's rumors about C-Log coming to the 5D, full-frame mirrorless from Sony. So check out the post on nofilmschool.com, and then check back here next week, and we'll have another discussion of camera and other rumors from NAB. Thanks, Charles. And we will ask you to stick around after the uh, little ad here to answer and Ask No Film School question. Oh, all righty. This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by Vimeo. Life happens in 360 degrees, and now on Vimeo.com, so do your videos. Now you can upload, watch, and even sell your 360 videos on Vimeo. Vimeo 360 means immersive eye candy, immersive adventures, and immersive storytelling from the world's best filmmakers. Plus, Vimeo has tons of helpful resources for all experience levels. Join the new home for 360 video at Vimeo.com 360. 
So this week at Ask No Film School, Mervyn James asks, what focal lengths do you need starting out if you're buying prime lenses? That's a great question. While zoom lenses have come a long way, there's still definitely a benefit to getting a few primes in your kit, especially since if your camera came with like a lower end kit zoom, they usually don't open very wide. So you're going to need a wide aperture prime lens in order to shoot in lower light situations. Personally, when building a kit, I start with a nice wide and a nice long portrait macro prime. For my wide, I start with something like an 18 to 24 millimeter lens in Super 35. Obviously, if you're doing micro four thirds, that'll be different. If you're doing full frame, that'll be different. Um, and then for my longer, something like an 85 millimeter is what I'm looking for. Those two combined with a kit zoom, great. I really focus on a wide aperture with that wide lens, since you're occasionally going to find yourself needing a nighttime establishing shot of a building, or you're going to have to shoot something in a basement, and you're just going to need that extra low light. And having at least one lens in the kit that opens to like a 1.4 or a 2 really helps. With the longer lens, it'd be nice if it opens wide, but instead, I focus more on close focus. Since I'm always going to want to have something where I can get like a real macro image to get some text on a paper or someone's close up on a cigarette. So if I've got that macro in the long lens and the wide aperture in the wide lens, I feel like I'm off to a good start. From there, you'll want to consider your third lens being like a nice medium lens in the 35 to 50 range. And once you've got those three, you could shoot whole projects without ever having to break out your zoom at all. Thanks, Charles, and good luck with your shopping. Mervin, keep us posted. And moving on to a very big and impressive slate of indie film openings this week, things that you can see. The Love Witch is coming to Amazon Prime Instant on Friday. In this movie, a modern-day witch uses spells and magic to get men to fall in love with her in a tribute to 1960s pulp novels and Technicolor melodramas. Director Anna Biller has created a delightfully handmade Technicolor thriller that gives you a rare glimpse into both the external and internal workings of a woman who loves men to death. Amazing. Oakley Anderson Moore interviewed the director about her stylistic choices, and you can read about it at No Film School. By the way, we will link to every article that we've talked about on the show and will talk about in the podcast post at nofilmschool.com. And speaking of delightful, Kubo and the Two Strings is coming to Netflix on April 8th. This is the latest feature from the Leica studio. They're an animation company responsible for Coraline and Paranorman, among others. And many people think this film should have won the Oscar for Best Animated Picture this year. We have a video on the site from Technicolor with the Leica founder, Travis Knight, that details his three essential rules for stop motion animation. Also coming to Netflix on April 7th is one of the best films that I saw at South by Southwest. It was a real crowd pleaser, but not for all the reasons you might think. Win It All is Netflix's newest original film, and it's the latest from the prolific indie stalwart Joe Swanberg, one of the mumblecore movement's de facto architects. Swanberg directed, edited, and co-wrote Win It All with frequent collaborator Jake Johnson, who also stars in the comedy as Eddie, a hapless gambling addict, perpetually driving himself into debt. So while Win It All is a comedy, it's also almost unbearably tense as a drama. Mm. You're on the edge of your seat watching Eddie save off a relapse and try to get his life together once and for all. Swanberg spares Eddie no hit, kicking him further and further into the gutter until the film becomes one sustained, nail-biting brace for impact with intermittent, hilarious comedic relief. At South by Southwest this year, 
I spoke to Swanberg and Johnson about their process, which really hasn't changed much since the $3,000 movies Swanberg started out making. He employs a lot of what he calls beat-perfect improv, where actors follow a beat-by-beat script structure rather than a rigid script. Even more interesting is the fact that despite this open-ended process, Swanberg decided to shoot the film on 16mm. And keep in mind, this was always intended for a Netflix audience. Here's Swanberg on how he decided to pare down his process using improv and a skeleton crew. Uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, I came up making $5,000 movies, you know, so I, I, having gone to film school and having worked really hard on a lot of really bad movies, my own movies I'm talking about, uh, when I got out of film school, I was like, something is wrong here. Basically, uh, it's not through lack of effort. It's not through lack of passion. Something is missing because everybody, I'm watching us like drop from exhaustion, from having worked so hard. Why are none of these movies good that we're making? What, what's the disconnect? And so when I got out of film school and, and was like, okay, I, if I want to be a filmmaker, I got to start making movies. Uh, I was like, what, what do I unlearn from film school? What was the thing there where no matter how hard we tried, we couldn't make something good. Hmm. And so I tried to just scrap a bunch. I was like, okay, one of the things is none of these scripts are good. What if I just let people talk with their own voice? What if I try that? Is that going to yield any kind of interesting results? Uh, These crews, like having 15 people standing around like this, leaning on the wall, watching everybody work is not helping. What if I got rid of those people and it was just three people on set. And, and those, what if those three people were also the actors in the movie? So whoever wasn't acting was like holding a boom pole <laughs> and we're all switching jobs. I was just trying stuff because I was like, the other thing didn't work. Yeah. I watched all those results. So I'm not just going to do that again. We want to congratulate Brooklyn-based filmmaker Joanna Arnau on a double release this week. Her feature doc, I Hate Myself Smiley Face. Yep, that's the smiley face emoticon and a short film, Bad at Dancing, were both released online this week. I Hate Myself, Smiley Face is an almost excruciatingly personal documentary about the downward spiral of her relationship with an ex-boyfriend. It premiered at Rooftop Films a few years ago, and actually when we had Rooftop programmer Dan Nuxall on the podcast, he specifically mentioned it as a film he was excited to have helped release. And this week, it's now available on Vimeo On Demand. I got to say, I, th- I saw it in a special screening, uh, special theatrical screening this past weekend. And I was like the person in the audience who was like shouting out loud. Like I was so, there were some scenes in there where I was just like, no, you didn't. So, you, you know, it's, you got to watch it. Um, and then Joanna's kind of follow up to that doc, a very funny black and white short called Bad at Dancing, won the Silver Bear at Berlinale and is also available this week via Short of the Week. I interviewed Joanna about both films and the sort of crazy positions she put herself in to make them, uh, and that interview will also be up at No Film School this week. So we didn't do last week's show because I was on vacation. That means we missed a couple of the films that were released theatrically then. We'll catch you up on a couple of them now. So graduation hit theaters on April 7th. And if you know one single filmmaker from Romania, let it be Christian Mungu. You may remember his harrowing Palme d'Or winning drama, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, about illegal abortions in communist Romania. It's unforgettable if you saw it. It's unflinching, and I will stand by the statement that it's one of the best contemporary dramas out there. His new film, Graduation, is just as morally complex as his last. 
In fact, Mungu deals in moral ambiguity. And when I spoke to him last year, he told me, quote, what I like to do in cinema is to preserve the complexity and ambiguity that I see in life. Things don't come with an interpretation. They just happen. The film is a story of a Romanian high schooler who's sexually assaulted right outside of her school. Because the trauma occurs right before her most important final exam, her mediocre test scores jeopardize a scholarship to Cambridge. But no one is more upset than her father, who wants more than anything for his daughter to leave Romania and to make a better life for herself. So he makes a Faustian bargain. Mungu and I discussed his gripping style of realism, which includes casting non-actors from Facebook photos, minimalist editing, and extensively choreographed camera movement. The Transfiguration came to theaters on April 7th, and I actually saw this film last year at Cannes, but it more recently screened at South by Southwest. Michael O'Shea's story is every first-time director's pipe dream. When he didn't have the resources to shoot his vampire coming-of-age story, O'Shea took to the streets of New York for a run-and-gun shoot with a skeleton crew. And when it came time to submit to festivals, he angled for a genre premiere, targeting things like Fantastic Fest or Fantasia Film Festival. But on a whim, his girlfriend and producer suggested O'Shea submit to Cannes, and the deadline was fast approaching. So he just kind of thought, why not? Months later, the unknown first-time writer-director of The Transfiguration found out his film would screen at Cannes. But it wasn't always so easy. After graduating from SUNY Purchase in the early 90s, O'Shea spent 10 years struggling to pay the bills with odd jobs as a cab driver, doorman, and computer repairman. It was by sheer will and ingenuity that O'Shea's micro-budget film, which explores the banality of violence while playing with vampire tropes, came to be. Here's O'Shea and his cinematographer, Sung Rae Cho, on their process of run-and-gun filmmaking. The, the, how we did it, I don't necessarily like, you know, recommend to everyone, but I think there's a way to do it. Like, often people get discouraged by like, not having locations or uh, um, uh, resources to, 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 to make it work. But, um, you know, if you have good script and good actors, and if you're, you know, if you keep hitting it, hitting and like trying, um, you eventually you you come to the point where like, you know, you feel comfortable just finding a place and shoot it. Like, it, you know, the whole city that you live in New York. I mean, the, the whole city is like, like the film set essentially like kind of giving to you, and just do it. Like, just you know, worry about like all these like you know, permits and things like that, maybe later. So we could also just kind of say with a blank face, we're tourists. Yeah. Like, you know, if anyone asks what we were doing, like, we should just be like, what do you mean? We're tourists. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, you know, I mean, and also picking locations carefully so that you know you can get this kind of, we can get the mood and the feeling. We got the mood and the feeling not through creating it artificially, but through spending two years finding the perfect locations that create the mood and that we, you know, almost give us basically the key light and we just kind of, you know, fill it in a little, show just kind of fills it in a little. Um, you know, we carefully choose locations and then, you know, that helps us so much. Um, in terms of live environment shooting, it's, I think it's very hard on the crew and they were very kind to not quit. What an amazing story. One of my most fascinating interviews recently, actually, uh, was with the producer Jared Ian Goldman, who has had his hands on a bunch of indie favorites recently, like the Skeleton Twins, Loving, and Ingrid Goes West. And another project of his, Little Boxes, premiered at Tribeca last year, and it's coming to theaters on Friday. It's called Little Boxes. It's directed by Rob Meyer, and it's a real gem. 
it follows an interracial family as they move from New York City to a small town and they face biases all around, including their own. It's pretty frank. It's not um, not necessarily what you'd expect. And if you're a sucker for that show Parenthood, like I am, you might like this one because it's got that same kind of subtle sweetness and humor on how hard it is to be a family. Also, the whole sort of range of topics just ends up being very, very timely, which they didn't necessarily anticipate when they started making it. Fun fact, the dad in the movie is played by Nelson Ellis, who uh, also played a lovable drug-addled drag queen in HBO's True Blood. So if you watched that show, which of course I didn't because I would never watch anything so silly and vapid ever, (laughs) uh, it's worth seeing this film to witness his transformation and range as an actor. I mean, he goes from like a wild, dramatic, um, yeah, drag queen to sort of an understated uh, writer dad. Sounds great. Yeah. So Little Boxes in Theaters Friday. There are some great grant deadlines coming up. On April 15th, the National Film Board of Canada Filmmaker Assistance Program, otherwise known as FAP, (laughs) has a deadline. (laughs) Yes, it's really the acronym. Um, This is a really great program. It um, awards really worthy projects every year. I highly recommend everyone check it out. If you're a Canadian citizen or a landed immigrant, the Film Board of Canada has 10 provinces that offer emerging filmmakers $3,000 to $5,000 grants a year in technical services to complete your film. Deadlines obviously depend on the province, so be sure to check them out individually on the site. On April 18th, San Francisco Film Society and the Sloan Science and Cinema Filmmaker Fellowship has a deadline. The fellowship offers $35,000, a two-month residency at Filmhouse, and a connection to the Bay Area's science and technology communities. It's founded by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation as part of their supportive programs that nurture, cultivate, and champion films that explore science and technology. Under the auspices of its Artist Development Program, San Francisco Film Society will award fellowships to filmmakers in the screenwriting phase, developing a screenplay that tells a story related to science or tech. The San Francisco Film Festival is going on right now, too, which is which the San Francisco Film Society sponsors, and we love those guys, so hope it's going well out there. Yeah, and I actually have an interview set up with um, somebody over there to talk about the rebranding of the festival and their new initiatives, so I'm excited about that. It's going to be later this week. San Fantastic. <laughs> and the last deadline is April 17th. It's for Scriptapalooza screenwriting competition. <laughs> <laughs> this is a popular screenwriting competition where the first prize gets $10,000 and genre winners get $500, which is significantly less than $10,000. <laughs> I am not sure why. Is that supposed to be 5000 $5,000 feels very piddly. I asked my grandma for $500. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Huh. Well, we will look into that. Anyway, we've also got some festival deadlines coming up. The Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival, where you sit in Hot Spring while you're watching films. No, you don't, but that's what I want it to be. Has a deadline of April 19th. It's in Hot Springs National Park in Arkansas in October. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival. The oldest nonfiction film festival in in North America, according to them. Um, And they give lots of awards, so that's always exciting. Uh, The Tall Grass Film Festival, also taking us to the middle of the country, has a deadline of April 19th. It takes place in Wichita, Kansas, also in October. It's the largest independent film festival in Kansas. It's been included in Movie Maker Magazine's annual 50 film festivals worth the entry fee list. And... Flavor Wire has also called it one of the foremost regional festivals in the country. 
they also offer cash prizes, which makes us happy. The Grove Film Festival brings us to the coast. It takes place in Jersey City, New Jersey on June 14th, and it's one of the top 100 rated festivals on Film Freeway. The Grove Film Festival has a deadline on April 20th. Got a couple shout outs here. A very useful book was released this week called The Filmmaker's Guide to Visual Effects, and it's available now on Amazon. We were lucky enough to have its author, Aaron Dinor, a VFX supervisor on films like Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street and Woody Allen's Cafe Society, write a post for us at nofilmschool.com with 10 life-saving VFX tips for your indie film. Also, the 16th Tribeca Film Festival starts next week, and we will be covering the films and panels for you, so be on the lookout for that at nofilmschool.com. Also be on the lookout at the site for our No Film School interview podcast next Monday. It's going to be a really entertaining conversation I had with three DPs at South by Southwest, each of whom had very different films at the festival, two of which won awards. And the interviewees are really candid about their experiences in cinematography. I think that you'll enjoy it. Meanwhile, you can read about everything we discussed on the podcast and more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. Please, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes. And, you know, if you love us, give us those five-star ratings and stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. Emily is at E.L. Booter. Our missing John is at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, John, Jim. It's just not as fun when I do it by myself. Jim, can you do it, Charles? Jim, Jim, Jim. <laughs> Thank you. And Charles is at Charles Hain, and we're all at No Film School. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>